This is Oren Herskowitz, Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures at Columbia University in the City of New York. We'll be talking today with Columbia Engineering faculty member Harish Krishnaswamy about his startup Mixcom mostly, but also about why 5G wireless is so fundamentally different and the role that getting to higher frequencies play in that difference. We'll talk about why hardware startups are so hard and the lessons he learned starting, growing, and eventually selling his company Mixcom for $155 million virtually during the pandemic. Dr. Krishnaswamy, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Um, obviously, there's. I'm going to want to spend a lot of time on your startup, Mixcom, which you just sold for a whopping $155 million in the middle of a pandemic. But, but maybe before we get there, can you give us a little bit of an overview of your lab's general area of focus? Uh, I know you work on wireless hardware and software, but like, what parts of that and what makes that interesting to you? Yep, absolutely. And uh, Oren, thanks so much for having me on this uh, on this podcast. Really, you know, happy to talk about uh, the work that my lab does and our journey through uh, through the startup Mixcom. So, my lab, uh, we call ourselves the Columbia High Speed and Millimeter Wave IC Lab, or Cosmic Lab. And uh, you know, as you pointed out, we work on hardware for wireless communications, and specifically, we work on hardware that enables new forms of wireless communications that would um, tremendously increase the data rate, the capacity that, uh, that is delivered to users, and as a result, you know, change their experience while using wireless technologies. And uh, over the past, uh, I guess, 13 years or so that I've been at Columbia, we have worked on several new kinds of wireless technologies. Uh, one is uh, millimeter wave, which essentially refers to the usage of higher frequencies than what we use today. And with those higher frequencies comes higher bandwidth, higher data rates, and you know essentially new applications like uh, virtual and augmented reality, connected cars, etc. Um, and really, it's that millimeter wave technology that led to the founding of Mixcom. But you know, over these past thirteen years, we've worked on other uh, emerging wireless technologies as well. And the other aspect about this, you pointed out, we work on hardware. So we actually we build chips. Um, that would uh, go into wireless communication devices. So that would go into things like uh, phones or you know, on the infrastructure side that would go into base stations um, that really enable these new wireless technologies. So for those of us who don't have a background in physics or electrical engineering, why does higher frequencies allow for higher bandwidth? Like what's the connection there? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So, um, and, and just, you know, for background, the uh, frequencies that we use today uh, whether it's uh, it's on our phones or you know on our uh, Wi-Fi connections, are what's called sub six gigahertz, so frequencies below six gigahertz. And uh, what my lab has been working on, and uh, you know, actually, really, I've been working on dating back to the start of my PhD, which is almost twenty years ago, is what's called millimeter wave technology, and that's frequencies above thirty gigahertz. So it's literally almost ten times higher frequencies than. Um, than what we uh, what we use today. Now, what's sort of very fundamental about um, any circuit that you would build is that the um, bandwidth that you can use is usually some fraction of the frequency that at which you're working. So, you know, typically, let's say a tenth or so. So, you know, if you're working at some frequency around five six gigahertz, then you, you can use about a tenth of that to send data. So, obviously, if you then go to ten times higher frequency, you can actually also use ten times more bandwidth get 10 times more uh, data rate. So that's sort of the underlying physics behind it. 
But there's also a regulatory aspect to this. So as uh, you know, perhaps um, several of our listeners might be familiar, in the U.S., the FCC, uh, the Federal Communications Commission, they regulate what frequencies are used for what application. So they tell you what you can use for cellular communications, what you can use for Wi-Fi, and you know everything else that's actually done wirelessly. And over time, just all the frequencies have uh, that that you know below six gigahertz have all just been used up. They've all been allocated, and so there's no there's no free space available. So you know it's it's really a question of real estate, basically. There's no mm. land available below six gigahertz, and so you really just have to go to higher frequencies where you know it's just not been developed out yet. Right. And is this infinitely scalable? Like, is there so you're you're now at at, at a number that's ten x what can be used today? Is there hypothetically any reason you couldn't get to ten x that and ten x that? Yeah. Ultimately, it's a, again a great question. Ultimately, um, you know, there's a limit to how high how high a frequency um, you know electronics can fundamentally go, um, and you know beyond a certain frequency. And I put that at a few hundred gigahertz. Electronics just don't work anymore. Um, and actually, when you keep going beyond that, that's when you start to use light, actually, you start to use optics, right? Um, but uh, yeah, in terms of where electronics can work, uh, I put that at a few hundred gigahertz. So that is, there's still probably another 10x beyond what we're, uh, what we're endeavoring to use today in 5G. But I wouldn't say there's a whole lot beyond that. And um, as you know 5g is moving into commercialization and you know that's really where my startup is active um you can imagine that researchers at uh, universities have started to think about 6g um and you know one of the important aspects of 6g is to sort of get that remaining 10x and to go beyond 100 gigahertz. Ah, okay and maybe for the benefit of our listeners you know we all hear about the term 5g and hear that tossed around quite a bit and i think very few of us myself included could really give a good explanation of what 5g is and why this is exciting so like what is our phones seem to the layperson our phones seem to work fine like what what does 5g do for us and why is it yeah. so groundbreaking yeah no that's an excellent question so you know i think there's um, what would interest you know the the technologist uh, or you know sort of a person working um, on the hardware side of things like myself, but then there's actually what's, you know, um, relevant to the user, which I think is actually what's ultimately most relevant anyway. Um, so from um, the technology side of things, this going to higher frequencies to the millimeter wave is really what's new about 5G. And in that regard, it's actually a much bigger change over prior technologies than we've ever seen before. So, you know, when we went from 1G to 2G, 2G to 3G and 3G to 4G, there wasn't as massive a change as this as going to 10 times higher frequency. So, um, you know, there were other things that were uh, that were upgraded, but um, this change in frequency is really um, a huge uh, a huge thing that uh, you know is the kind that we've never seen before. And that's also, I would say, what has opened up the ecosystem to you know to startups because uh, as we've gone to these higher frequencies, you know, sort of the big companies in this space. Um, uh, you know, have been caught a little flat-footed. There isn't expertise uh, uh, within those companies uh, to, to sort of build out at these higher frequencies organically. And so there has been an opportunity for kind of startups who have been working in this area for uh, for a while on the research side of things, say in academia, to now come out and uh, sort of, you know, challenge the big guns and try to carve out a niche for themselves. Uh, but then again, to your very important question of what does it mean for the user, right? So, um, there, there are two aspects to this. So 
for sort of the user, you know, who's on his phone or his uh, tablet or, or or what have you, it would enable new applications that are just not possible today with the with the data rates that uh, 4G can deliver. And so one example is untethered virtual and augmented reality. So, you know, the amount of data that you have to transport to a headset to really give the user a true, um, you know, um, uh, uh, VR or AR experience is uh, much, it's, it's far beyond what today's wireless technologies can deliver, which is why, you know, the highest quality VR and AR headsets actually have a, a cable that connects you to, you know, some form of computing device. There's basically a, te a tether on those. So, you know, those kinds of applications that are not possible today is what, you know, 5G will enable. Um, there's also a value proposition for the carriers, so for the Verizons and the AT&Ts and uh, the T-Mobiles of this world, where um, they can now deliver data rates to the user at a much lower cost basis. So even if each user is getting a sort of similar amount of data as what they were before, um, these carriers can use these higher frequencies to sort of massively multiplex different users um, and essentially deliver services to a whole host of users at a much lower cost. And so uh, there's that value proposition for the carriers as well. So that's interesting. It actually, it, it not only enables new applications that couldn't be done before from the consumer perspective, but also allows the carriers to do so at a much lower price and to far more people. Exactly. And, and you mentioned earlier, you mentioned earlier that uh, the next level up from the data rates you can get would be in optics. Um, but I'm guessing that optics have trouble going over, you know, you, you presumably can't use them over distances in the same way that you can do with wireless. Is that yeah, right? Exactly. I mean, yeah, exactly. Certainly, you know, transmitting through, uh, through the air, right, through free space, right? So optics does not lend itself to just kind of radiate through free space. Of course, you know, we send light through optical fiber, and we do so over extremely long distances, for instance, across the Atlantic, and that's how internet gets to our homes. But wirelessly, you know, optics just, uh, you know, will not travel very well over free space. Um, you know, it easily gets blocked by opaque objects. Um, it doesn't do well in adverse weather conditions, etc. So, um, you know, it, it, it isn't sort of uh, practical to replace today's you know, wireless communications that are done at what's called microwave and millimeter wave frequencies uh, with uh, with optical communication. Got it. Okay. Um, when I, you know, we, we the, one of the great things about Columbia is you've got such an incredibly broad array of science being done. And when I when I think about the kind of work that's done in some of the, you know, physics or astrophysics or the, or the medical center and the basic biology, um, you're so clearly in the realm of pure discovery research. Um, and and it's 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 understandable why companies, you know, even the the, the world's largest companies like Pfizer or Merck or, or GE um, can't really play in that space, and and therefore that's that's the you know the reason why the federal government funds so much of this work and why universities do what they do um, is pushing the ba the boundaries of knowledge. On the more applied sciences and engineering, um, you know, I think about when I hear you talking about your work, I think about companies like Samsung or Qualcomm um, and others that might be doing what sounds to me to be, you know, this seems like it'd be squarely in their wheelhouse and something they'd be focused on. Um, so where does most of your funding, like who, which, which agencies fund your work and, and why, 
What's different about what happens in the, your lab at Columbia and what a Samsung or a Qualcomm can do? Yep, you know, that's a great question. So actually, uh, my lab has historically been uh, mostly funded by the Department of Defense, um, specifically DARPA. And, uh, you know, I'd say that uh, through, you know, DOD and DARPA funding, uh, we've actually worked on problems probably five to 10 years before, um, you know, they've reached that level of commercialization uh, that, you know, they'd be picked up by a big company. So for example, the work that's uh, being um, commercialized by Mixcom today was done in my lab from about 2010 to 2015, mm. roughly. And, um, you know, around about 2015 was when we saw that work maturing to the point that it didn't make sense for us to work on it in our um, labs anymore. Um, sort of wasn't, um, um, you know, I wouldn't say exactly basic research, but on the basic side of the applied research that we fundamentally do. Um, and, um, and so that's when, you know, shortly after that, 2016, uh, we started thinking about, um, uh, you know, does it make sense to spin out a startup company to explore the commercial potentials of this? So uh, we do certainly get funding from, uh, you know, uh, industry and, you know, the companies that you mentioned, you know, we've worked with Qualcomm a bit uh, and uh, you know, several others in the semiconductor space, but uh, typically most of the funding has come from the Department of Defense, specifically DARPA. And, you know, I'd say our experience with DARPA has been fantastic in that they're, you know, they fund, um, you know, research a, a solid five to 10 years before it's sort of ready to, you know, hit uh, commercialization. And they've also given, you know, academic performers such as myself, the flexibility to, to, to explore new things and uh, to sort of see where the research would, would lead us, um, sometimes not entirely constrained by, you know, the program that was funding us to begin with. Mm, that makes sense. Maybe let's talk about Mixcom a little bit. So it's safe to say, that this must have been a very interesting last few months for you, but but before we get into the the the, the story of the sale of Mixcom, maybe let's start with the company itself. What was the fundamental innovation that the company was based on, and why did you decide that after you know a twenty year career in this field that this was the thing worth starting a company around? Yeah, absolutely. So fundamentally, the innovation that we um, uh, that that led to the founding of Mixcom is this work that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, went on from 2010 to 2015 uh, within my lab that was funded on a DARPA program that increased the uh, output power and efficiency from power amplifiers by roughly an order of magnitude. So let me describe a little bit by what that means. So you know, we talked a little bit about all the benefits of millimeter wave, you go to higher frequencies, you get more bandwidth, and that leads to higher data rates and a better experience for the user. That's all the good stuff. Um, there are several challenges with millimeter waves. So fundamentally, you know, when you go to higher frequencies, the signal just doesn't travel very far. Um, and so while, you know, at sub six gigahertz, a base station can send a signal even kilometers at millimeter wave, if you manage to get the signal to travel a couple of hundred meters, you're already doing well. Mm. Um, and it also doesn't um, uh, you know, it gets absorbed very easily by anything that contains moisture. So the signal will get absor absorbed by leaves and foliage, by the human body, etc. And so as a result, some of the early deployments of millimeter wave technology were quite challenged in providing coverage. And so, I mean, you can actually read online, you know, there are several uh, analyst reports that say that, uh, you know, with millimeter wave and these early deployments by these carriers, 
Um, when you can get the signal, it's fantastic and you get tremendous data rates, but it's not so easy to get the signal. You only get the signal in certain select pockets of the cities in which they've been deployed and specifically when you have line of sight to the base station and so on. And so um, what the innovation that we came up with allows either the base station or the, uh, or the mobile device to just transmit more power but also do so efficiently, so without draining the battery as much. And so that just allows you to transmit over larger distances to sort of power through um, objects like uh, trees and foliage. And so generally it would expand the coverage um, and make millimeter wave much more practical and much more usable. And certainly, you know, allied with that would come benefits in the cost of what it takes to deploy millimeter waves, improved user experience, et cetera. Uh, you know, the question of why now or why, you know, 2017 to 2021, why was that a good time? Uh, well, and that's also why, that I mean, and why a startup as well, as opposed yeah, to publish exactly. the paper or collaborate with Samsung or someone else. Yeah, that's, you know, yeah, you know I've actually sort of looked back and uh, thought about why. And the reason is actually that a lot of people now ask me with this exit, you know, what's your next startup? And uh, I have to say, I don't know. <laughs> uh, and the reason is that, um, you know, so, you know, I think of ultimately I am, a, you know, I'm a researcher, I'm a technologist, right? So I'm not necessarily a serial entrepreneur who's going to jump to the next startup that might be, you know, a social media app or something like that, right? So ultimately any startup that I pursue would be something that comes out of some research that we did in the lab, uh, but then, you know, there's a lot more than just the research that has to kind of fall into place for, you know, a successful entrepreneurial endeavor. So, you know, there needs to be some, you know, breakthrough research that gives you a significant benefit over the state of the art. But then at the same time, there needs to be a market opportunity, right? So there needs to be an application that is waiting for that innovation and also, um, you know, some opening in the ecosystem that allows a small company to enter and make a niche for themselves uh, while competing with the big guns. And that's essentially what happened circa 2016 to 2017, where the 5G millimeter wave was starting to take off, but we saw that those early deployments were challenged. We saw that, you know, some of the big companies were struggling um, um, and, uh, you know, we're sort of trying to develop the technology internally, but we're failing. Um, and, you know, we already had quite a bit of technology developed in the lab, albeit, um, you know, at the level of academic development certainly needed to be brought to the commercial world and hardened. But, you know, we felt that there was sort of like a five-year window where we could go out, you know, carve a niche for ourselves, bring our technology to market, actually see it deployed, and then, uh, you know, as a result, also, uh, also exit. And so, um, I think that's, uh, you know, that's, that's, that, that's an opportunity that we saw. And I think, you know, It'll be interesting to see when that opportunity uh, comes again. Um, I think, you know, it's definitely kind of hard to plan for, but uh, I think what this experience has also taught me is that those opportunities are there. You just have to sort of be, uh, know where to look and sort of be able to be agile to act upon them when you see them. So I was going to say to the other question about sort of why a startup versus, for instance, why not publish the paper and license um, the technology to big companies. So in this space, um, there's a lot that, goes into just the implementation, sort of, you know, building the chips and so on that aren't necessarily codified very well in a paper or in a patent. 
And so, you know, to transition the technology, one would not just need to license the patents and hand people a bunch of papers. Uh, you know, companies also want uh, the experts who actually implemented it. So they'd want the students, maybe some amount of the PI's time as well. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, so that's been a challenge, I think, in transitioning um, this type of technology to, uh, to big companies such as a Qualcomm or a Samsung. And so that was, you know, yet another reason that we felt that a startup would be a good way to do that. So th this is your first startup company. Um, and am I right? This is your first one? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So you must have had ideas about what it would be like to start and run a startup while also maintaining your job as a professor and your, your family life and everything else. Um, how did the reality of becoming an academic entrepreneur match up against what you thought it would be? And, and how was it launching a startup out of Columbia? Yeah, you know, absolutely. So um, I think, uh, you know, when we started to, uh, you know, go out and, uh, you know, when we founded Mixcom and we started to, to raise money, uh, I would say that, um, you know, I had this perception that, you know, the experience would be very challenging. Um, and I think, you know, that was really born out of, uh, you know, the, the track record of startups in the hard, hardware space. So hardware, you know, is, is particularly challenging because uh, it takes a lot of capital investment. You know, building chips is expensive. Um, you know, um, hiring top PhD students, hiring top uh, experts at the field is expensive. Uh, it also is very time um, um, time consuming. So, you know, the amount of time it takes to come out with the first product that you can actually sample to customers. Um, that can be as much as, you know, one and a half to two years, uh, which, um, you know, is, is a lot longer than the design cycle in, uh, in other areas. So, uh, you know, I had a sense of that when I started the company, but I think I didn't really appreciate uh, the extent and the implications of that until, uh, you know, we actually started Mixcom. So uh, I think, you know, one of the um, uh, learning experiences was actually just the amount of time it takes in hardware to, and, and the amount of money it takes as well to sort of um, to actually uh, build out something that's a real product as opposed to a prototype that you can actually sample to customers, get in their hands to really win, win meaningful business uh, and revenue. And so um, that's uh, that's been an interesting uh, learning experience. And, you know, I actually see this um despite the fact that our journey has been shorter than most. So most folks, when they hear that we exited within four years, um, you know, that's, a, that's actually, you know, fairly, you know, a fairly short uh, time to exit compared to most companies in this space. But uh, I would say that, um, it, you know, even in that context, I didn't have a full appreciation of that um, uh, when, I was, uh, when I was launching the company. So, you know, I go back and I look at the business plans that we had in 2017 and, you know, how fast we thought we'd be able to get to product and how fast we thought, we thought that we'd be able to get to revenue. And, um, you know, certainly there was a, a good deal of naivete there, I would say. <laughs> um, I would say the, uh, what really helped us along is I think that, um, you know, Columbia does an excellent job in supporting um, you know, startups to, to, to launch and commercialize technology. And, you know, I'm, I'm very, very particularly uh, happy with the relationship that Mixcom has had with CTV. So, you know, specifically you, Oren, and, uh, and, and Greg Maskell, who's the licensing officer that we work with on a, 
uh, on a day-to-day basis. So, um, you know, I'd say that uh, at least from what I've heard, a lot of universities can tend to sort of put obstacles in the way of uh, of uh, uh, professors, uh, uh, you know, starting companies, and that absolutely was not my experience uh, with Mixcom. Uh, you know, obviously striking a licensing deal to license the patents and the terms around that, that's one aspect of it. But uh, but beyond that, you know, obviously raising capital is challenging. Um, and again, you know, it's challenging in hardware for some of the reasons that I mentioned earlier, but also, you know, those reasons um, uh, actually lead to sort of reluctance on the part of, uh, of, of VCs to invest in hardware unless there's a clear value proposition as well as some early demonstrations. And so, uh, you know, I've been uh, tremendously impressed with, uh, uh, with how connected CTV is within the VC ecosystems ecosystem and you know the the introductions that were made and uh, uh, and of course you know one of those introductions led to uh, us being funded on two rounds by Kairos Ventures but That's great. Um, the other you know aspect about this and I think you know this is also probably one of the things that um, uh, folks don't appreciate until they actually start a company is that it's amazing how people that you don't actually have a formal relationship with still manage to be exceedingly helpful along the way I guess you know the whole process is just littered with so many potholes and challenges that uh, everyone recognizes that, uh, you know, that any startup needs sort of a village to support it to actually be successful. And so, you know, several VCs, advisors that we didn't end up having a formal relationship were extremely helpful along the way in talking through, uh, you know, our business plan uh, and making introductions, for instance, to, uh, to Mike Noonan, who um, started out as an advisor to the company and then later became our CEO. Uh, and you know it was also extremely instrumental in this exit, and so I think all of that ultimately you know um, flows back to CTV and um, uh, and the support system that CTV puts around um, uh, fledgling startups. So you know really appreciative of that. Oh, that's great. That's really great to hear. And thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, this actually this worked out clearly. This worked out very well for everyone involved. This worked out well for for you and for Mike and for. The, the venture investors, I know, are very, very happy with the exit. Um, and Columbia as well, of course, is super proud of this. Uh, th- this was must have been extremely strange last couple of months because of the four years that you've had Mixcom running, two of them essentially have been during the pandemic. And including the identifying a, a partner and a sale of the company, like how, how did that even work? Well, yeah, it's actually been surreal. And it's not just that it's been two years out of the four years, so half of the lifetime. It's actually been the mature part of the company, right? So most of the first two years, we were fumbling around trying to figure out what to do, to be honest. So um, it's actually, you know, the entire maturation time of the company has been virtual. Uh, and that's been, you know, tremendously surreal. And, uh, you know, when I think about what we've learned from these last two years in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the efficacy of work from home and so on. I'd say, um, you know, there are sort of three aspects to, I mean, there are probably more, but at least in the context of what can be done virtually, I think about three aspects of, of you know, our mixed comms operations. So there's design, there's experimental work, and then there is, you know, the business and the go-to-market side of things. Uh, what's actually emerged is that design can be done virtually. So, you know, folks can sit at home and they can design hardware, they can design chips. You know, of course, that's a collaborative endeavor, but, you know, tools such as Zoom and so on have gotten good enough that, uh, um, you know, it's almost 
Uh, I wouldn't say it's exactly the same as, but it's almost as good as, you know, designers being huddled into the same office and, you know, designing a chip while being able to, you know, collaborate with each other and discuss challenges. So I'd say, you know, our designers exclusively work from home. And I wouldn't say that we've perceived a tremendous impact to our productivity because of that. Um, experimental work, though, of course, has to be done in the lab. Um, you know, we have a lab at, in Chatham, New Jersey, which is, uh, you know, which is Mixcom's headquarters. And there's just no, you know, substitute for physical presence for experimental work. Uh, you know, there's been, you know, um, progress on how to sort of automate experiments and how to run them remotely from home. But, uh, you know, that's actually only practical when everything works well. And, you know, that's almost never the case, right? So any kind of debugging has to be done in the lab uh, with, you know, um, an engineer at the bench, um, you know, staring at a chip with smoke coming out of it and trying to figure out where the smoke's coming from. So um, that aspect has still is needs to be physical and our, and our engineers who work on the experimental side of things, they actually physically go in. Uh, and of course, you know, we're, we're very careful about, uh, uh, you know, distancing protocols, et cetera. I think the third aspect about it, which, um, you know, I think is definitely challenging, but somehow we've managed to keep our heads above the water is, is the, um, you know, business development and marketing side of things. So I know, you know, Mike, our CEO feels strongly that, you know, deals are much more effectively negotiated and signed, you know, um, in a conference room across the table and then at the dinner afterwards. And, uh, you know, I think he's been lamenting for several months now that uh, he just can't wait to get back on the road, meet with customers, look them in the eye and sort of get to a deal. Um, and so I think that side, I think is definitely impacted by, uh, by, uh, by COVID. Um, given that though, I think I'd say we probably turned that from a challenge into an advantage in that we've tried to be much more proactive in working with customers as much as we can virtually, uh, being maybe more transparent than your average company in, in, um, uh, in, you know, in sort of in our technology and sort of getting things to work and, you know, being collaborative about that. And so I think, you know, we've managed to turn that challenge into uh, a differentiator and an advantage for the company and that extends even into into the acquisition i would say you know we, we just got bought by someone we've never met right and uh, i think uh, they're flying here now that uh, you know the borders are opening up they're flying here next week so uh, uh it'll be interesting to sort of uh, uh meet our new partners uh for the first time uh but you know that that, that was definitely challenging as well because uh, as you can imagine you know acquisitions are a little nerve-wracking and i think there's just no substitute for again being able to look somebody in the eye uh versus you know having to try to guess body language or resume dr krishna saw me one last question um so having seen what you i mean you've you've lived the dream in a sense like this is the dream of every academic entrepreneur that you you have a big idea you start a company around it you take that risk and four years you sell it for 150 million dollars um and so i guess the question is sort of what's next like if you had a if you if you have another big idea in your lab which you obviously will um would you start a company again and until that happens you know what are you going to do with your time yeah, no, absolutely. So um, I think, uh, you know, definitely, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, I, I'm looking forward to doing, um, you know, another startup in the future. 
um, as I mentioned, of course, you know, it would, it would just, just knowing myself and, um, you know, knowing the way I think about things and knowing what interests me, it wouldn't necessarily be something that uh, comes out of some research breakthrough that we had. And, you know, at the same time, there is a, you know, there's a, a unique opportunity to bring that to the market. But again, actually, what, what this experience has taught me is that there are a lot more of those opportunities than what one necessarily assumes from the get-go. So I have no doubt that that will happen. Uh, you know, maybe it's not tomorrow or most likely it's not tomorrow or within the next year, but it's certainly around the corner. Um, and, you know, I, I definitely, I mean, this has been, it's been a tremendous amount of work, but it's been tremendously enjoyable. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've gotten to uh, meet and work with a lot of people that I wouldn't otherwise had the opportunity to do that, to do. So, um, you know, I definitely am looking forward to that next opportunity when it should come around. Um, you know, up until then, you know, I'm definitely um, uh, looking forward to, um, you know, taking a bit of a breather. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to spending a lot more time with family, honestly, because, you know, you mentioned the startup and, of course, you know, uh, Columbia Research and, of course, the pandemic. But I think the, um, the fourth uh, aspect that's made the last couple of years particularly crazy is that, uh, uh, you know, I have a three-year-old daughter at home and she's, you know, she's our first, she's my partner and I, um, you know, our first child. Um, she was actually born around about the time we were designing and fabricating our first chip. So I remember, you know, stealing a few hours uh, in between her naps to quickly do some design way back in uh, <laughs> 2000, uh, uh, 2019. So, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to just, you know, spending uh, more time with her. You know, she's definitely at a very interesting um, and, and fun age. Um, and so, you know, I'm definitely looking forward to that. You know, a lot of folks ask me, you know, are you going to retire? And, um, you know, the first question that comes to my mind is what would I do if I retired? So, you know, I, I really need to find a hobby. So that's actually <laughs> action item number one on my posted to-do list, which is find a hobby. So I'm looking forward to doing that. If any of the folks listening have any uh, ideas, you know, please don't uh, hesitate to, you know, send me some suggestions, but yeah, definitely looking forward to, um, uh, you know, to, 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 to kind of spending uh, time with my family over the next couple of years as, as the new opportunity comes by. Dr. Christopher Shami, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And, um, you know, just looking forward to more and more exciting uh, success stories coming out of Columbia. Mm -hmm.